Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. And as always I hope you enjoy the narration and if you do please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 297 Airdrop Supplies Rathia stepped off the jeep and surveyed his surroundings, abandoned burning torches laid haphazardly all around, casting an orange glow to the area while bloodied bodies were people of Orkins remained where they had fallen. Much thanks, Lord Rathia. Trembling voice spoke from behind Lord Rathia. You saved my people. Durak cautiously climbed off the wondrous magic carriage and kneeling down before Rathia. I pledge my soul to your service, Lord Rathia. Oh, get up. Rathia tugged in the arm of the Orkin twice his size, and stopped calling me Lord. I work for a living. Durak stood up and gave a deep bow before he ran off to his kin, as they stood behind the barricade staring at the newcomers. Sir, the marine reported, the enemy is in full retreat. Have our boys fall back here, Rathia ordered, and assist the Orkins, give them whatever they aid we can spare. Yes, sir, the marines ran and started yelling orders to the rest. Lieutenant Tyria called out and waved Rathia over. He crouched over a body and poked his rifle and came over. Well, looks like our messiah has met his match. Rathia peered down the eagle-spread figure and a couple of gunshot wounds in his chest. The messiah's eyes were open as if he died with a smile on his face. This guy is crazy, but now with him gone and the pact scattered all over, they should die out by themselves. Let's hope so. Tyria covered his face while the messiah and closed his eyes. Problem is now, how do you deal with the remaining factions? Oh, once they find out that we were involved in saving the Orkins, Rathia looked over at the ruins. They'll come running to us without a doubt. Hmm, Rutheria nodded. And the Orkins, you're going to bring them back to Orwell's Point? Why not? Rathia asked back. Can't let them all die here. Yeah? And besides, their race becoming so sad is also part of our fault. You mean these jerk human fools? Rutheria's eyes narrowed angrily. We did what we did to ensure our people's safety in the future. Well, isn't that what Turok is trying to achieve now, too? Rathia replied. Turia kept silent for his consideration at Rathia's words. You are right, but still, it wasn't our fault that these came about. They had a coming, and when they joined those traitors. Rathia sighed as Turia walked off and spoke softly. But we bombed the crap out of this place and unleashed a great evil here. Shaking his head, he wandered off to find Turok to see what he needs while the rest of the marines police the area. How bad is it? Turok crouched down next to one of his dead kinsmen, whose body was badly mutilated with murderous mob earlier. He stood up and said, Too many of my kin have died tonight. But the old, the young, the weak were spared. Turok sighed tidily. Much thanks on your part. What are your plans for your people? Rathir asked. Turak looked at the tired expressions of his people that he left and growled in frustration. My people need food, shelter, and safety. I pledge my services to you, Turak said, but my people need to be safe before I can commit my honor. Why don't you people follow us? Rathia directly asked. Your people will be welcomed with us as long as they don't break any laws. Really? Turak seemed hesitant, but we barely have enough food to travel for even a week. Don't worry about supplies. Rathia assured the Orkin. As long as you can convince your people to follow us, we can make it back just fine. Thorak scratched his head and raised his thick fingers. But we have six ten tens of people. Six ten ten. Rathia looked at Thorak's fingers gestures. Six hundred. Yes, yes. Thorak nodded. How can you feed them? 
No worries, Rathia grinned. Let me show you the power of our UN. The next day, as the sun reached the zenith in the sky, a low rumbling could be heard. Rathia stood next to the marine sentry at the edge of their camp and looked towards the northwestern skies. Next to the marine camp, dozens and dozens of leather tents had sprung up overnight as the Orkin people relocated their base next to the marines for safety. Torak and Rathia staring out at the sky and wondered what was he daydreaming about. What is that? Torak asked Rathia and continued to watch the incoming aircraft. Is that? Torak's eyes widened as he remembered the same noise he heard before the city and what tact. We must find shelter. Those flying creatures will burn down the whole place. Relax, Rathia stopped Turak from running off. These are our people. Those flying creatures are yours. Turak's eyes narrowed in suspicion. Did you attack the city? Rathia nodded and started to explain now that he actually happened and why the city was attacked. Turak listened quietly in the tale of when Rathia finished. He asked, Now you know the truth. What will you do? I have pledged my service to you. Torak gave a shrug. What has been done has been done. We no longer have the strength we once had. And we Orkin might be stubborn, Torak grinned, but we are not stupid. You have great power. We Orkin cannot win. If you cannot win the enemy, Torak gave a bark of laughter. Join the enemy! <laughs> At this point in time, the droning noise grew louder, and two dark silvery objects appeared in the skies. Their appearance caused some panic amongst the Orkin, and Torak had to settle them down. The two FB-1 mariners flew past the marine space and circled around, while one of the marines on the ground popped a red smoke grenade and flat nearby fields. The two bombers turned cargo planes, waggled their wings in acknowledgement, and they flew over the smoke. A couple of black objects dropped out of the underneath the aircraft, and they flew over the smoke and parachutes appeared. The aircraft continued to circle back to drop more parachutes before it flew over the marine base and gave a salute by wagging its wings before they flew off back to Bullwell's Point. A total of 12 pallets of supplies were dropped out of the planes, triple parachutes deployed out of the pallets gently floating the supplies down to the ground, while the waiting teams of marines secured the billowing parachute silk and ensured that the contents of the pallets were not damaged. Sir... One of the marines jogged up to Rathia and reported, We got some minor spillage on three of the supply pallets, but most of the spilled stuff are cranes. We can get some manpower from the Orkins. We can secure the supplies in an hour. To Rock, Rathia turned to the ogling Orkin next to him. Can your people here move food under shelter? Turok nodded hurriedly, and he quickly ran off and bellowed. The gawking crowd of Orkins for them to go help the Marnies carry the food. Sir, another marine appeared next to Rathia. We got some representatives from the ruined city here to see you, sir. Got it, Rathia nodded. Let them wait. I'll be there shortly. In the end, Rathia purposely let the representatives of the two factions sweat inside the tent for over half an hour before he strolled in with Sergeant Tyria. Good afternoon, gentlemen, Rathia greeted the red-faced merchant and the shallow-faced leader of the survivors. What can I do for you? We, um... The both leaders looked at each other, and the beggar looked like quickly said, We wish to say we have absolutely no involvement with the attacks on the Orkins. The merchant bobbed his head rapidly in agreement. I was asleep last night when the Messiah attacked the Orkins. It was till later that we found out, and we decided to come here to clarify everything with you. Rothia sneered inwardly. It was more like they found out how powerful our weapons were compared to the Orkins and how they defeated the Messiah and the Pact in one night that they decided to come and beg for their lives. Really? Rothia put a frown on his face. 
but I seem to recall seeing people from both factions getting involved. Impossible. The two leaders' faces paled. There must be a mistake somewhere. Enough. Rathia was tired of the charade. Now, I have two choices for you here. One, you continue your pretense that you rule here, Rathia stated sternly. You can keep on rotting away here in this land. Two, you submit to my authority. Rothia stared at the two leaders intently, and I will bring you and your people out of the cell hall. What will you choose? Rothia simply asked. I, I, I choose to follow your leadership. The leader of the survivors quickly submitted as he quickly kneeled down about. My lord! And you? Rothia turned to the red-faced merchant. What will you choose? I, uh, shall follow your rule, my lord. The merchant too kneeled down and bowed. Good, now return to your people. Rothia stood. Gather everything necessary for a long journey over the plains. Abandon everything that is not of use or dead weight. We are traveling over across the plains. Both men looked shocked, but we barely have any supplies to make the trip. Don't you worry about supplies, Rothia ordered. Gather your people now. It was nearly evening when two groups of elves approached the marines' camp warily. The marines, using powerful floodlights, quickly brought the people into order and arranged them into easily manageable groups of a hundred people each, with the community leader in charge of each group. Next, each group was told to line up and given a bowl of steaming porridge made from the airdrop supplies where they quickly wolfed down in hunger. Once they finished the food, they were directed to wash the bowls when another group came in for dinner. Diria. Rothia sat in the command truck and called out the Claymore One squad leader. Tomorrow, I want you to take your men and check out the ruins for any tech and whether their missing target is still alive. I can only spare you one section of marines to help you. Tyria nodded. Yes, sir. I'll brief the men. When Tyria left, Rothia sighed at the numbers on the paper. If the census of the number of people here was currently, there were 1,809 elves and 623 orkins. Out of that number, there were 500 elves and 200 orkins below the age of 16. Almost everyone had some form of malnutrition and would not survive the trip back to Orwell's Point if they returned now. He probably needs weeks for everyone to recover their strength before they could make the journey. This means the Air Force has to constantly resupply them with food and each aircraft would only drop the most a ton of worth of food. A ton of grains could only roughly feed 2,000 people for a day. And if the Air Force could only drop two tons each day, he needs another ways to supplement their diet, if they were to travel towards Orwell's Point. Water shouldn't be an issue now, as the pact had been scattered unless they poisoned the underground water. But when they start traveling, they too would need water supplies from the Air Force if they could find any sources of water. Better get too rocked up the land route back to Orwell's Point, thought Rathia, since they are more experienced traveling and living in the plains. And hopefully nothing major occurs back at Orwell's point that'll force the Air Force to be unable to resupply us. End of chapter. Chapter 298. Standoff. Shard River, north of Orwell's point. Dozens of barges nested against the sandbanks of the river as teams of workers unloaded equipment and supplies of the barges while being overseen by marines. Trucks and jeeps slowly and carefully rolled off the ramps of the barges and drove off to the marshalling points. Marines and the Earth Affinity rapidly loosened the earth so that the others could easily dig up the soil to create the trench network. A small army of foresters twelled away the surrounding trees, creating clear lanes of fire and using the material to create barricades. 
Coils of barbed wire originally used to fort the city were deployed in front of the trenches, creating an interweaving barrier of razor wire. The marine signals installed poles and transmitters and buried hundreds and hundreds of meters of cabling for the army's communication, linking them all to the main command bunker that was being populated with equipment. Above the mad frenzy of preparations, a soul dragon lazily flapped its wings and glided gracefully over watching the area. Orwell's Point Marine Stronghold CEO's Office Enter! Joseph replied to the knock on his door, which swung open and two bulky orc marines had to lower their heads as they entered the office while escorting in the prisoner. Lady Titania sat anxiously on one of the chairs before Joseph leapt in a hurry as she saw the two prisoners being brought in. Brother! Judas! The two prisoners were dressed in striking bright orange prisoner uniforms while their heads had been cuffed to a chain and rather further linked to cuffs than both their feet and arms. They were both anti-magic collars, and under the restraints of the cuffs, they could only shuffle their feet into the room. Sit! Joseph gestured to the chairs before him, and the two orc marines shoved them down onto the chairs, before Joseph dismissed them out of his office. Do you like your accommodations? Joseph teased him as he grinned at the hate-filled expressions of the two prisoners. Remove me, sus, at once! Titus roared. You bastards will gravely regret your actions! Enough, Night Captain Judas hissed as he sweating slightly had pastry complexion as he barely recovered from his ordeal two days ago. What do you want? Oh, since we now have the eldest miss and the youngest master, Rothschild. Joseph gave a wide smile. I think the ransom has been renegotiated. Biggs! Titus sneered as he sat in his chair. He felt deeply humiliated as he was half drunk when he got hit by a lightning spell that made him disgrace himself and urinating all over his robes. You are a bunch of greedy pigs. Well, your daddy is a rich one here. Joseph continued to smile while giving a shrug. Why not? You! Titus roared from the chair in anger. Sit down! Judas barked and Titus gave a humph before settling down again. How much more? Since the asking price for Lady Titania is at 10,000 slaves, Joseph winked. Well, he can't be lower than that, right? Another 10,000 slaves? Judas's eyes widened. You really are greedy. Ten? I was thinking 15,000 total. Joseph laughed. And it is not counting the rest of the delegation, including your ransom. Fifteen thousand, Titania gasped. You want to exchange the two of us for a total of 25,000 slaves? Twenty-five thousand slaves! Titus chucked. Why don't you just rob the emperor himself? Eh, in a way we are robbing the emperor, Joseph pointed out, by depleting the resources of the Rothschilds. Titus paused and grimaced as he shut up his mouth and returned glaring daggers at Joseph. The Rothschilds may be rich, but uh, Judas shook his head. After 25,000 slaves is impossible. The city and the neighboring region farms and mines will collapse due to lack of worker slaves. Then, Joseph gave a shrug, you all will remain our guests for longer. Lord Joseph, Titania suddenly spoke up, please let me negotiate with my father. I can be certain to come to an agreement between us that does not need to become bloodshed. <laughs> Titus snorted, thinking about your own skin. Titania frowned and she ignored her brother's biting words. I know the strength of your soldiers. You can easily destroy a force ten, twenty times your size. I do not want more blood on my side, Titania admitted, and she lowered her head. Please let me talk to my father. People will not have to die needlessly. Where is your honor? 
Titus stood up angrily. Where is your bride as a Rothschild? Have the dogs ate it? Why are you bowing to this barbarian? Smack! Titania glared at Titus with a palm print slowly reddening on his pale skin. He stared at her and then opened and closed his mouth again. They can destroy the entire Knights of Silver in one night. Titania growled at stunned Titus, whose cuffed hands wouldn't even reach up to rub his face. What can twenty or even forty thousand regular soldiers do? Titus sat there quietly as he slowly digested the news. How can you be so sure they were all destroyed? Judas asked in a questioning tone. Because I've seen the bodies while the two of you were knocked out and tossed into the dungeon. Titania's voice pitched higher. All of the knights you're so proud of. Dead. Money you think will happen to the region if the land barons and nobles knew that the only power that kept them in line is totally destroyed. Titania slumped down in her chair in defeat. My gods. Titus's face turned paler. They... They will revolt. Yes, Titania nodded. The only force that glues the region together will fall apart. And if those troops were deployed, Judas grimaced, the land barons will take the chance to grab for power. Joseph gave a polite cough and smiled coldly at the trio and his attention. Now, that is all none of my problems. The issue now is you broke the parley and attempted to murder everyone. So forgive me if I give any balls of what you will happen to your home. All I know is that your people will have to pay up compensation and ransom for your safe return. Joseph said coldly, Now, since Lady has volunteered to speak with her father, I think we can accommodate their request, but only on a place of my choosing. 0924 hours, North Defense Line. A single Imperial cavalry slowly appeared out of the thick fog from the forest edge and paused before a field that had its trees and foliage recently dug up and chopped down. The rider held a lance and two flags, one blue and one white tied to the tip. He remained motionless as he sat in his land dragon and surveyed the area, and was surprised as when several figures that appeared out of the ground slowly walked up to him. The knight frowned at the painted faces and the bits of leaves and other plants stuck to their bodies, and inwardly sneered at these barbaric forces. I come bearing word to the United Nations that this land of the city of Orwell's Point rightfully belongs to His Majesty. Rightful ruler of the people, Emperor Bluewood, American Bluewood. The knight declared smugly, Return the land and its people to their rightful owners, and the emperor, praise his benevolence, will allow you your lives. The several barbarians in their mud and leave outfits looked at each other and laughed, making the knight's face turn red with anger. Return the hostages you've taken with trickery, and be good to surrender yourselves quietly. The barbarian seemed not to understand his words and kept giggling and laughing away. This is your last chance. Do not take our benevolence as weakness. All right, suddenly one of the barbarians with a strange accent said and gestured to the rest of order. Well, you can tell your high and mighty emperor he can come and kiss my rear. Barbarians hearing the compatriot saying that broke out into laughter. Insolence! The knight hissed and bared his teeth in righteous anger. You will pay for this insult. Oh, don't get your underwear wet because of that, Mills grinned. We have a message to whoever's in charge. The lady Titania Rothschild wishes to speak to her father in regards to the ransom and other compensation. Mills enjoyed pissing the knight off. Place and time will be set there. Mills pointed to a small rise that was in an open and handed a rolled-up scroll with fanciful ribbons and wax seals to the knight, who snatched it and dropped it into a pouch. I will bear your words to the lords. 
the knight's eyes flashed within the covered helm, and I will not forget the insult that you gave my emperor. With those last words, the knight wheeled the mount around, clawed hooves nearly stepping on Mills's booted feet, and rode off towards the forest into the fog. Well, that went well. Mills grinned at his men. Let's see if we can delay them and make them more angry. The men cheerfully made their way back to the concealed trench line, and Mills left his squad at the forward trenches while he made his way to the maze-like trenches and towards the command bunker. Sirs, the stood at attention inside the bunker and greeted the officers gathered around the tactical table. Message delivered. Good, Lieutenant Silverstar nodded and gestured Mills come over to the tables. We are just discussing the enemy depositions. Looks like they divided their forces into five armies, a marine with an eye and three lightning bolts shoulder patch pointed to a colorful photo with an aerial view taken from the infra camera. Five distant blobs of red and white colored clearly could be seen arranged side by side under the cover of the forest. The center army looks like their cavalry, while the flanks should be infantry. Also, we haven't spotted any air support yet. The intel officer said, we believe that their dragons are hidden somewhere at the rear, so our UAV is still searching the area for them. Another two photos were placed on the table, and this time it was a regular image with waters of the salt sea in the background. This is where the supplies are stored, and they are being supplied from the lake. If we count roughly amounts of supplies that they are loaded, the intel officer continued, we can roughly estimate the number of troops that they have. Rough estimates at 25,000. The intel officer replied, but that is not all. We have a sighting of another force coming down the Shard River. That force should be Rothschild's army, coming to reinforce the current army on the ground. Another image was placed on the table. We estimate another 10,000 mixed troops. Mills whistled. 35,000 troops against our single battalion. That's like 36 to 1. Mills shook his head. Yes, Lieutenant Silverstar nodded. Hence why we want to lay them as much as possible to enhance our defenses. Can't we get the PT boats to do a lightning strike against the river forces? Mills suggested. Cut down their reinforcements. No, the best plan is to sneak the PT boats into the salt sea and pillage the supply lines, the intel officer said. Four troops on the ground. We can hit them easily with our attack planes. Our marines will hold the ground here to prevent them from advancing, while our guns and mortar hammer them at the distance. The officer detailed their ops plan. The FB1s will link up with the PT boats once they reach the salt sea for resupplies, and they will block off the enemy's rear. We will force the enemy to break their teeth against our defenses. End of chapter. Chapter 299. Parlay. Orwell's Point North Defense Line. A simple tent with sides rolled up sat in the top of a small rise. Inside the tent, a simple table and half a dozen chairs were placed overnight. Lady Titania sat on one of the chairs, nestling a cup of tea nervously as she waited for her people to come. She kept glancing out towards the forest while Mills laid on his back at the side of the tent. Soon, the thumping hooves could be felt a dozen cavalry-bearing streamers of blue and silver rode out of the forest edge. They stopped at the foot of the rise and dismounted, while three armed men climbed up a gentle slope and stopped before the tent. Lord Father! Titania rose up and greeted the graying man in a full set of ornate armor. Moral Rothschild's eyes warmed when he saw his daughter was doing well and placed a full-faced helm on the table and locked eyes with the seated soldier and head of the table. I have come as you demanded. Joseph nodded and gestured to his guests to sit down. Refreshments? I am not here to drink with the enemy. 
Mole growled as he sat down on the chair, which creaked under his weight. Tell me, what do you want in return for the release of my children? Joseph observed the other two men standing next to Mole, and mentally took note of them. Both men extruding a gloomy aura and were dressed in full-plate mail and helms that covered their faces with a motif of twin-tailed scorpions was displayed fully on their chest plates. I want twenty-five thousand able-bodied slaves for the release of both your daughter and son, Joseph bluntly stated, and another two hundred thousand gold crowns for the rest of your people and this compensation for the broken parley. Twenty-five thousand slaves! Earl's face turned red in anger. Impossible! That is the price for the release of your children. Joseph's expression remained stern as he stared down at the old man. Pay up or leave. When do you want war? I'll give you war. The older man slammed his fists against the table in anger. Do not beg me to kill you when I get my hands on you. Father, Titania cried out. No, you can't send the troops in. The knights will all destroy it, and if your troops destroy it too, the barons will revolt. Titania, Moel shot a warning look at his daughter. You need not fret about it. I have summoned all the baron lords here. Moel turned and quietly waited for Joseph and growled, Release my daughter and son now, and I will give you a chance to run away with your life. Are you deaf? Joseph asked. Twenty-five thousand slaves, or no deal. Moel's face turned redder as he glared at Joseph. Suddenly, one of the knights in black armor spoke. Enough! There is nothing more to be said. Moel's face turned slightly gray, and Joseph was amazed that the old man's expression could keep changing. He gave another look at his daughter before he stood up and, without a word, exited the tent of the two knights in tow. Father, do not act restlessly and attack them. Titania called out a warning after her departing father. They have weapons stronger than what the knights are capable. Hey! Moles clamped a hand on Titania's shoulder, making a jump. Stop spinning our secrets. But Titania looked at her father walking away. My people will be ruined. My family will be destroyed. In life... Joseph suddenly said beside Titania, you have to make choices, and once these choices are made, you have to keep walking that path. Your father has long chosen his path, Joseph said. One must be a man enough to keep in his path and accept the things that he's done. If your family hasn't suppressed or treated the rest of the barren lords in the region badly, Joseph continued, why would you be afraid to lose support of your troops and knights? With that, Joseph left the tent while Titania muddled over his words in anxiety. They are purposely forcing your hand, the rock said as he removed his faceplate home, and you fell for their taunts. Who are they? Earl hissed and tossed his helm at the footman. Where did they come from? The rock handed a helm to another servant and took the goblet of wine. My sources tell me that these people might be the remnants of the Gold Rose Kingdom. The bunch of defeated peons. Muel forcibly removed the gauntlets and snapped them down on the table. Yet they have the strength to defeat my daughter's army and the highly trained knights. Muel eyed the bold commander suspiciously. What are you holding back from me? The rock gave a cold smile. But I know, naturally, I will share. These uh, people calling themselves the United Nations are a thorn in the Emperor's wool. And I shall destroy them by any means necessary. He declared and finished his wine in a single gulp. Hmm... Moal frowned and sat down. I pray that it is so. They are already proven to have quite a magical power to defeat my knights. That is why my bronze men are here, the rock declared. Why is body stronger than iron? They feel no pain or fear, and they are partially immune to magic attacks. Those abominations, 
Moel shivered as he remembered the ranks and ranks of emotionless eyes staring at him. Why would the Emperor resort to such creatures? Efficiency, the rock simply explained. They need no food, nor water, nor will they tire. Should any part of the bronze men be damaged, they only require maintenance by the organ mages to repair them and refuel them. Still, those things give me the creeps. Moel shuddered. Imagine an entire army of bronze men. The rock smile widened. We will no longer need daft farmers and slaves to battlefields and the constant workforce without any disruptions. What do you think will happen? But the bronze men as a standing army, the farmers and slaves need not be drafted away, leaving farms and mines untended. Mual spoke as his thoughts excitedly. The farms and mines will keep producing unlike the men that were drafted away to war. And the bronze men need not be paid a salary nor fed, the rock added. All they need is just arcane fuel to power their bodies. The bronze men of yours sound very interesting. Mal's mood had lifted by the thoughts of the army in this cheap and efficient. They are still in a testing phase, the rock admitted, but so far they are doing quite well and the emperor is very pleased with the results. Mual rubbed his hands together excitedly. When can we expect the emperor to start producing more of these, uh, bronze men? That is for the emperor to decide. The rock shrugged. As for us, we have to destroy these rebels first. Yes, yes, Boal nodded. Once the best of the Baron's forces arrive, we can push forward to destroy these upstarts. Good. Once these pests are removed, the rock gave a cold smile. The Isles will be next. Up a shard river, the sleek bow of the PT boat smoothly cut across the fast-flowing river as it was roaring out of the hidden cove of the riverbank. The twenty-four-meter-long patrol boats powered by twin Dragonite engines had burst out without warning as dozens of flat-bottomed Imperial barges passed by its location. The Imperials cried out in alarm at the sudden appearance of the PT boat at their flanks, and they, ready archers and mages, let loose a barrage of arrows, bolts, and spells at the intruder. The speed of the PT boat totally exceeded their logic, and they failed to hit the faster mover. Splashes and plumes of water sprouts chased the strange watercraft as the Imperials tried to hit it. Suddenly, the body of a strange watercraft erupted with flames and smoke and the screaming begun on the Imperial barges. The PT boat fast attack craft 09 Daisy roared mightily and tossed its secured crew against the hard against the restraints as the pilot threw the FAC into a sharp spin and throwing the three-meter-high spray in the wake. All gunners, fire on rearmost target! The PT boat skipper, a newly minted second lieutenant quartz, roared out as the boat came to a complete halt in the river. Almost instantly, the entire PT boat rocked and all three gun mounts mixed with 50 calibers and 20 millimeter autocannons fired. The skipper of the Daisy quickly ordered next, Pilot, flanking speed, keep the distance 200 meters away. Aye, the pilot replied and he gunned the throttle and the Daisy eagerly leapt forward to his touch. The skipper glanced out in the narrow view slits and the armored shutters windows with the wheelhouse of the PT boat and watched the impacts of the gunner's work. Thy caliber rounds shredded the starboard side oars of their targets. Splinters of wood and unidentified bits flew wildly as the Imperial River Barge rocked under the heavy punishment. The gunners worked their guns from one end to another of the barge, blasting holes out from the hull which leaked blood and returned to River Red. Reloading! came the cries of the gunners as they fired all their ammunition and started to hammer the fresh cans of ammunition into the guns. Hold fire, Daisy Skipper ordered. Pilot, bring us up to the next barge down the line. Gunners, target the next barge. Aye, aye, 
the men cheerfully chorused as they carried out their orders. Suddenly, a loud clank could be heard from the hull of the boat and the crew jumped in surprise. What was that? Skipper, we took a hit to the port side. One of the men on the topside yelled, A bloody ballista bolt! Check for damage, the skipper quickly ordered his engineer, who went down other to check the interior hull. Pilot, evasive actions. We got a tiny hole in the port side lower hull, the engineer reported, taking in a bit of water, but it's fixable. Advise not taking any more hits. Our hull is pretty thin. The bolt of the ballista had poked a small hole in the lower hull, which can fit two fingers. Water leaked through the torn and splintered wooden hull, while the engineer slapped a patch over the damaged hull and hammered away. You hear that, pilot? Quartz grinned at his men. Don't let them take a beat on us. Lucky shot. The pilot cursed under his breath and weaved the daisy in an S maneuver. Coming up on the next target. Gunners! You know the drill. Quartz cried out into the mic. Fire! The bark of the guns immediately drowned out as a constant rumble of engines as the whole PT boat rocked off its sides as it plowed through the river's surface. The Imperial fleet, already alerted to the attacker, had its men firing their ballistas, bows, and magic at the enemy as fast as they could. Yet despite the heavy barrage from the Imperial fleet, the impossibly fast attacker seemed immune to the attacks as it weaved between the bolts and spells while spitting fire back at them and disabling the barges one by one from the rear. The Imperial commander cursed madly as he clearly man-made arcane boat and kept its distance and disabled another of his barges. Suddenly, a thick cloud of dark smoke popped out from the cursed boat and finally suffered the wrath of his feet and it visibly slowed down. Launch the rowboats! The Imperial commander rubbed his hands in glee at thinking of the reward that he would get. Capture that thing at all costs. End of chapter. Chapter 300 Stand to. Crap! The chief engineer cursed wildly as he and the other crew members work on busted fuses and melted cables. Damn lightning spells fright the power. Crew armed with spare cables started to rip the burnt and melted wiring out of the compartments and circuit breaker boxes, while Daisy's engineer removed the engine covers and cursed again. Damn! The belt is melted. Shut the engine down or we'll be rowing home, he yelled from the engine room hatch. Lieutenant Quartz quickly yelled to the pilot to shut down the engines while almost every electronic system failed and only the guns that could bear the enemy were at the 50 cals and the 20mm gun turrets that run on electric motors. Pop the smoke generator. Quartz leaned into the warehouse and yelled at his crew, Make smoke! The men quickly responded as they made their way to the rear towards the large steel drum mounted in the rear of the boat. The smoke was not true smoke but a chemical mixture under pressure which when released and poured over the water, it would thick and heavy, evil-smelling, a wall of black smoke. Incoming small craft, the gunners yelled as they spotted dozens of small boats being lowered into the sides of the barges. Quartz quickly turned his attention to the Imperial fleet, seeing the enemy fleet deploying boats landing with troops. And Farkas, one aboard us. Alec, he turned back to the engine room and yelled at his engineer, How much to fix the engines? Ten minutes to replace the engine belt, and we need to replace all the busted fuses and cables. Alec yelled back as he wheeled at a wrench, or we won't have the power to jumpstart the engines. Bark! Quartz cursed, and he returned to the wheelhouse and ordered, Get ready to repel boarders! The lucky hit by the bolt of lightning had overloaded the fuses, despite the anti-static and lightning diffuser, and the resulting burst of energy had ripped the belt off the engine. Shedding the belt's tough belt was causing the PT boat to lose speed. 
Now, they were dead in the water, but luckily they weren't too near the Imperial boats and the water current was against them, and they were drifting away with large ships. Large splashes of water slapped against the hull as Daisy and the Imperial fleet continued to lose bolts of ballistas at them. Just as Colts flinched from the near miss, billows of black smoke erupted from the rear room and soon the smoke blocked out his view of the Imperials. He exited the wheelhouse and yelled to the crew, Toss the barrel over the side! The men quickly hoisted the barrel and spewed a foul smoke and the barrel hit the water with a splash while the smoke constantly drifted out of it. Have you guns? Courts ordered as he stared at the wall of smoke that was covered to the view. Any word from ten? The radio men took his head and tried to call for help over the air. Too much interference. Hopefully they spot the smoke and try come and investigate. Damn! Courts took her off at Cutlass from his crew and went back to check on the gunners. How the guns? Skip! We can only fire the fifties, the gunner reported. The twenty mics are locked up. Without power to the turrets can't turn and fire. Okay. Quartz quickly reorganized his crew. Keep manning the fifties and the rest grab your guns. Provide cover support for the fifties. Contact! A lookout yelled and everyone spun around to cry, seeing the shadow burst from the wall of smoke. Shoot them! Quartz quickly ordered the coughing Imperials jerked up in surprise and panic at seeing their enemies so close to them. Instantly, barks of revolvers and shotguns answered courts as the crew of the Daisy fired at a boatload of helpless Imperials who barely resisted. It's like shooting verums in a bloody cage. Someone laughed at the men reloaded the small arms. Look, more's coming. Attached to the gunfire, the rest of the Imperials paddled in the smoke to investigate, and the men of the Daisy eagerly greeted them with gunfire. Sir, at this rate our ammo won't hold out. Daisy's executive officer reminded Quartz. They can afford to throw bodies at us, but we don't have the ammo to fight it out with them. I know, we just need to buy time for Alex to fix the boat, Quartz replied. Once we can get moving, and we are going to find a hole to hide in and wait for them to give up finding us. The Shard River has many smaller tributaries and waterways deep enough for us to get into, Quartz said. With their slow speed and their size, they can't catch up nor chase us, while we can keep going and hit and runs on them. As long as our fuel and ammo hold up, the Exo added, provided we fix the engines first. Quartz grinned as he watched his crew easily gunning down the Imperials in doves. Well, looks like we can hold them off long enough for the mechanics to fix the engine and power. Keep an eye on the top side, Quartz said as he returned to the wheelhouse. I'll go check on the engines. Imperial Camp. Mual Rothschild crushed another roll of parchment into a ball and stood up, his face white in anger, while the messenger who delivered the news quickly retreated out of the tent. What is it? Rock asked as he remained seated and sipped his wine. Another baron lord has pulled back his forces. Moal tossed the balled up parchment onto the table for Rock to read himself. That is the third baron giving us an excuse to pull back their forces. The Rock's eyebrows rose as he read the report. Then we shall no longer wait and strike immediately. Traitors! Everyone is a traitor! Moal hissed and turned to Rock and said, I will have their heads on a platter once we are done with the charade. Men, Moal yelled loudly, and a couple of his aides entered the room. Inform the commanders to prepare for a dawn assault. UN Ford Trench Alpha 2, 0630 hours. Stand to arms, stand to arms, hissed the platoon sergeant of Falcon Company. He half ran along the trench line and propped up the men awake. Come on, stand to, stand to. The Marines got roused up, grumpily stood up onto the firing steps and readied their rifles as they took the combat positions. Damn it, Sarge, why do we have to keep standing in this ungodly hour? 
The platoon sergeant halted and smacked the howitzer head of the marine who asked the question and growled, Idiot! This is the time when the enemy will most likely attack. But Sarge, it's been two days already, and they haven't even made any move, cried another marine as he yawned. I need my sleep. Jerks, you can sleep when you're dead, the platoon sergeant cussed. Now keep your eyes peeled wide open. When I come back and catch any one of you asleep while you're supposed to be on stand to, I'll make sure that you get all toilet cleaning duties for a whole damn month. Yes, Sarge. The men chorused tiredly while the platoon sergeant shook his head and ran down the line, checking on the men. As the platoon sergeant left, the men stared to gripe amongst themselves. Those damn blue boys must be enjoying their sleep while we have to look to nothing. Besides, even if they do come, how can they beat us with their weapons? Another marine laughed as he putted his M1 magelock. This baby will send them to meet their ancestors. The men laughed just as a sudden whoosh screamed out into the dark skies before the tripwire flares burst and lit the surrounding area with a red glow. Crap! Contact! The marines yelled in surprise as they quickly peered into the sights while others smacked their buddies dozing off from the top of their rifles awake. One by one, tripwire flares popped up in the skies and soon the entire front was dyed in an ominous red glow. Alpha 2 and Firebase requesting starburst immediate fire. Over. Jack fire, Jack fire. The company NCO ran the line and roared at the men who fired at anything moving. Wait for the damn starburst, you idiots. The marines retained their fire discipline. Suddenly, a couple of shrieks came over their heads in the whole dull thud. The starburst shells fired by the mortars sighted by the firebase popped into existence and lit up the land before the trenches, exposing hundreds and hundreds of figures. The Imperials were like deer caught in the headlights as they were blinded by the sudden illumination. They stood brightly lit up on the area and turned kill zone and had been cleared by the Marines days before, while hundreds or more gathered at the edge of the forest. Own time, own target, fire! Lieutenant Silverstar of Falcon Company roared out as he peered out over the firing slits of the command bunker, staring at the target-rich environment before him. Almost instantly, the entire Alpha Trench line exploded as every rifle and machine gun that could bear on the enemy fired. Tracers reached towards the startled Imperials and men fell as they stood. I want a fire mission on that forest edge. Lieutenant Silverstar turned to his aide and ordered who quickly passed the mission to the artillery operator. A couple of minutes later, the shriek of a mortar shells could be heard and flashes of light followed by the thud of an explosive that could be seen and heard from the distant forest. Guess they finally gave up the waiting game. Lieutenant Silverstar grinned as he used the field glasses to observe the one-sided battle. Hmm, looks like they are using mages. Dozens of shimmering domes of arcane protection could be seen. The domes looked like soap bubbles, glowing under the illumination of the starburst shells. Sparks and traces bounced off the domes could be seen as the Imperial troops braced advanced under the protection of the magic spells. The semi-glowing domes instantly attracted the attention of the heavy machine guns as lines of trees of fire hammered at them constantly, creating an impressive display of sparks and ricocheting traces. As the protective magic domes came near the marines' lines, the Imperials' confidence grew. They cheered and roared loudly as the domes weathered the firepower poured out against them. Silverstar frowned and without turning away from his binoculars, "'Tell the MG gunners to focus fire on the closest dome.' and the RPG teams are clear to fire once they are across the lines of 150 mark. He added to his aides who relayed the message to the men out in the trenches. 
He watched the traces of the MG's suddenly switched targets and the traces all converged from the foremost dome, creating another impressive light show. The magic dome held for a short while before it suddenly popped into light modes and bullets suddenly facing no resistance, continuing on their journey before meeting the armor and flesh on the cheering Imperials. Silverstar shook his head and watched the formation of Imperials suddenly without the protection of the magic dome fell in disarray. Brave souls! What a waste of lives! The MG switched targets and aimed at another dome, and shortly the spell too failed under the concentrated barrage, and the MGs reaped the lives of those suddenly without any protection. Yet, despite the best efforts of the machine gun teams, there were now more and more domes of protection approaching the forward lines. The Imperials screaming out their defiance as they pushed harder, each a step bringing them closer to the flashes of spellfire of the detested enemy. Kill! 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 End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.